All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast, sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, Fink and Terry's Marinette Group of Shipyards is not only building ships, but it's greatly expanded its facilities and ability to move into full-bore production of the U.S. Navy's Constellation-class frigates. We went to Wisconsin to see their yards and to talk with CEO Mark Vandroff, who will fill us in on what's happening now and what's soon to come. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The United States has made a number of high-profile naval moves in response to the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas. Here's a chronological summary of naval developments. On October 8th, the Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group, nearing the scheduled end of a six-month deployment to the Mediterranean region, canceled a number of port calls and was directed to proceed to the Eastern Mediterranean. In addition to the Ford, with carrier Air Wing 8. The group consists of cruiser Normandy and destroyers Ramage, Kearney, Roosevelt, and Thomas Hudner. The Pentagon reported the Ford to have arrived on station in the Eastern Mediterranean by October 11th. On October 13th and 14th, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group left the U.S. East Coast as scheduled to relieve the Ford group in the Mediterranean. On October 14th, the Pentagon directed the Eisenhower Group to join up with the Ford Group upon arrival in theater. Carrier Air Wing 3 is aboard Ike, with cruiser Philippine Sea and destroyers Mason and Gravely making up the strike group. On October 17th, the Pentagon extended the deployment of Gerald R. Ford Strike Group with no timeline given for their return to the United States. On October 18th, the Bataan Amphibious Ready Group, embarking the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, was reported to be ordered to proceed to the Eastern Mediterranean region. Amphibious ships Bataan and Carter Hall had been operating in the Persian Gulf as a hedge to Iranian activity. The ships were still in the Gulf of Aden as of October 19th. The group's third ship, Mesa Verde, has been operating independently around Spain in early October, but by October 18th was apparently headed to the Eastern Mediterranean. Also on October 18th, the U.S. Sixth Fleet's command ship in the Mediterranean, USS Mount Whitney, left her home port of Gaeta, Italy, and proceeded east. The same day, the destroyer USS Kearney passed southbound through the Suez Canal to enter the Red Sea, and on October 19th, successfully engaged and shot down three land attack cruise missiles said by the Pentagon to have been launched by Houthi forces in Yemen and headed north towards Israel. The Pentagon has not specified the exact type of missiles or their presumed intended targets. The Pentagon also said Carney engaged several aerial drones on the 19th. Other nations have also moved naval forces to the eastern Mediterranean for contingency purposes, including the British landing ship RFA Lime Bay and the multi-purpose hospital ship RFA Argus. Those two ships left Gibraltar on October 15th with the Argus reported October 20th to be at Limassol, Cyprus. The British Royal Navy said the ships were being moved as a contingency measure to support humanitarian efforts. 
The first ever at-sea test of a railgun anywhere was announced by Japan's Acquisition Technology and Logistics Agency on October 17th. Few details of the test were revealed other than a video showing a developmental electromagnetic railgun firing from a ship at sea, reported by Naval News to have been a ship of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. An ATLA spokesperson told Naval News the agency believes it achieved the desired results from the test, including compatibility with the ship and obtaining data on the effects of firing such a weapon at sea. The four-ship unmanned surface vessel group being operated by the U.S. Navy in the Western Pacific was operating off Australia's northeast coast in mid-October. The USV's Mariner, Ranger, Seahawk, and Sea Hunter supported by the littoral combat ship USS Oakland, the LCS-24, and the chartered crew boat Rebecca C., left Townsville, Australia on October 19th. The group was most recently in Japan, operating with U.S. and Japanese warships. The Indian Navy accepted the delivery October 20th of INS Imphal, the third Project 15B destroyer built by Mazagon Dock shipbuilders in Mumbai, the building time for the advanced warship was about six and a half years, the shortest time yet for a destroyer designed and built in India. One more Project 15B destroyer, the Surat, is under construction at Mazagon Dock. In new ship news, the Coast Guard fast response cutter William Sparling, WPC 1154, was commissioned October 29th at Newcastle, New Hampshire, as the fifth new FRC to be based at Boston, Massachusetts. And HII's Ingalls Shipbuilding on October 13th delivered the National Security Cutter Calhoun WMSL-759 to the U.S. Coast Guard. The 10th National Security Cutter will be commissioned in 2024 at its home port of Charleston, South Carolina, where the Calhoun will join three sister ships. The 11th and last National Security Cutter, Freedman, remains under construction at Ingalls. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. We're at Fincantieri Marinette Marine, and joining us today is the Chief Executive Officer of Fincantieri Marinette Marine, Mark Vandroff. Mark, we've known each other for a while. Nice to, nice to be up here and visiting. Thank you for uh, coming and visiting us, Chris. It's always a, a pleasure to see you. Well, I tell you, it's a real pleasure to be here. And um, this is I, what's really been an eye-opener for me on this trip is visiting your three facilities up here. So you're part of what's what's uh, characterized as the Fincantieri Marinette. Fincantieri Marine Group. Marine Group, sorry, I have to spit it out right. Fincantieri Marine Group, which is really three yards, three facilities. Um, there's Bay Shipbuilding, Fincantieri Bay Shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, which is across Green Bay from where we are at the moment. There's Ace Marine, which is in the heart of Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, itself, and then we're, this is the main yard up here at Marinette, Wisconsin, right on the border with uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And I mean, it's been very impressive seeing all the yards, all the facilities. I have to admit, it's they're bigger than I expected to be. I'd never been to a base shipbuilding before. That was very impressive. There are two new erection, enormous erection um, buildings over there that are quite impressive, and, and then there's, of course, Ace Marine, which specializes in aluminum production. Mm -hmm. All of these things, all these all these entities are going to take part, already are taking part, in the frigate program, which you are the prime contractor for. Yes. But you're not just a, that's not the only thing that's happening up here. You're building three different classes of ships 
in this shipyard. You're finishing up a total combat ship for the U.S. Navy. Uh, as we speak, uh, the, the fourth to last LCS-25, the Marinette, is preparing to do sail away. You have three more. Um, you have the four multi-mission service combatants for Saudi Arabia are very much in hand, um, very impressive. And then you're, you're already starting on frigate, and you're having to do, you've already done, and continue to do major facilities upgrades to take on the frigate program, which is, of course, a primary pro, uh, focus of all the Navy shipbuilding programs right now. So now that I've set, sort of set the stage on that, where are you in, I mean, in terms of, um, I mean, how are you managing all these three programs at the same time? Yeah, so let's talk about the programs and where we're at on each of them. The littoral combat ship, for which we are a subcontractor to Lockheed Martin, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Marinette is sailing away this week. We have three left to deliver, and all three of them are very far along. Uh, as we speak here today, uh, the Nantucket LCS-27 has the team from NAVAIR on board doing her aviation certification. Uh, that is one of the last things that happens before a ship does her sea trials, builders and acceptance. Uh, that'll happen before ICE, those trials, before we ICE over for the winter, uh, and then after a successful acceptance trial, uh, 27's crew will move aboard. Uh, they'll sail once the ice melts in the spring, basically. Uh, 29, as you know, the LCS, uh, she requires the gear modification for uh, LCS. The combining uh, gears. The combining gears. Uh, the uh, equipment from Germany to do the modifications for her combining gears, arrives in the yard this week. Uh, previous ships, 21, 23, 25, uh, Lockheed Martin, 27, Lockheed Martin chose to sail the ships to Escanaba, just down the bay, uh, and do the repair there. Uh, Lockheed Martin made the choice, uh, which we're very happy about, that 29's gear modification will be done here in Marinette. So uh, the equipment for that arrives this week in the yard, and we'll start... Uh, besides the gear, that ship is done, effectively. If if it wasn't for the gear, I'd be ready to go on trials for that ship. The, there's maybe one or two compartments left to be sold to the Navy, maybe one or two tests in her test program ready to be finished up. But she's 29 is also effectively ready for trials. We'll do the gear modification over ice, and then once we get to to spring and we have the, the bay back ready to use, uh, then we'll go to trials on 29. Uh, 31 is coming along fine. Her shaft alignment starts here in the next week or two. That'll proceed, and by the time uh, next spring into summer, she'll be ready to start her trial program as well. So by next year, all of the L remaining LCSs will be uh, sold to the Navy. So we're, we're, we're at the end of that program. And, and because of that, my workforce... Presence on the LCSs is starting to dwindle down. They're just we finished up all the work. It's just a matter of the trial teams getting the ships through trials and then into the hands of the customer. Uh, on the multi-mission surface combatant, you saw today we have the first one is completely erected now in Building Ten. So she's in their erection bay. She's all put together. Uh, still a fair amount of work left to do on the ship, uh, and that ship will go in the water sometime next year. Uh, you saw two, Saudi two, being erected. 
we talked about the system of shipyards. Uh, what you saw today when I walked you around the yard was the entire hull form of Saudi II erected in the new frigate erection bay. Uh, and that's actually been a great opportunity. We've used Saudi II to learn how to use all the great capabilities of that new building, the new cranes, the new layout. Uh, so we'll be better positioned to use that ship to, uh, that, to erect, use that facility to erect the frigate once we go to start erecting DDG-62. But what you didn't see today was the bow of Saudi II. And this is going to be the first bow that was not only built across the river and bay, but was completely assembled. Rather than coming to us in pieces and having to erect piece by piece, we're going to have a fully erected bow unit. You saw that over in bay. That's going to get barged over in November, married up to the rest of the ship, and then we'll just erect the fully erected bow to the rest of the ship, put it on, put it up in the seam weld, and then we'll be going to town. So once we get that done, we'll have, again, probably about another year or so uh, once we get that bow on before we'll be ready to roll that ship out and put it in the water. Uh, and then you saw the first two modules, the lower parts of the engine room on Saudi 3. You saw that those were being erected in uh, the other bay, the second bay of Building 10, next to where Saudi 1 is. You saw that today. You saw a lot of pieces of Saudi 3 being painted and being outfitted. Uh, again, the bow module of Saudi 3 is currently being worked over in Bay Shipbuilding. That will all come together. You saw during your trip to ACE the superstructure of 3 being put together, the aluminum superstructure. That'll get barged here uh, early next year in 2024, uh, and we'll keep the progress on those Saudi ships. And you saw some of the initial steel cutting and, and, and panel line for the fourth Saudi ship also as you walk through the, uh, the yard. So, you know, I would say the predominance of work in the yard right now are those four Saudi ships. That's the, the, what most of our workforce is doing. Uh, and then you saw the initial work on the frigate. So you saw the initial stages of construction. You saw our brand new panel line, and I'll, I'll talk through, if I might, the new investments that we have made in this shipyard to be ready to execute right. the frigate program. But the first of that investment is uh, is what we call the panel line. What, when, explain for folks. And that's what I'm saying. Let me talk about what a panel line does. So simply, panel lines turn pieces of steel into ship structures. So if you've got, when you buy steel from a steel mill, you get a big rectangle of steel. Uh, you can order it in different thicknesses. You can order it in different blends of steel. But the steel mill doesn't do anything to the steel other than give you a big rectangle of steel. A big flat piece of steel. A big flat piece of steel, right. You can get it thicker or thinner, and you can get it in different blends. But you, when you go to the steel mill, you get a big flat piece of steel. So if you want to turn that into a ship, you've got to do things to that big flat piece of steel in order to get it to be useful for a ship. One thing is sometimes you need something that is longer or wider than the big than the than the big rectangle of steel that you get from the steel mill because they have a standard size so you have to weld two or more of them together uh, in our old manual panel line you would have a flat area to do that but you would have a welder who would have to weld one side of the two panels together and then you pick that 
up with a crane and flip it over and weld the other side. It was a long and labor-intensive process. Now you roll that along a panel line or automated panel line. It stops at the station and a robot welder welds the top. Done. Comes around, does the backside, and you're done. And that's all done with the touch of a button and a robot doing the joining of those. Uh, then if you have a panel, you roll it to the next station. You might have to measure out where you would cut a hole for like a, a pipe access or a manhole cover or a hatch. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, that's all being done now by a robot, not by a person. Uh, in the end, if you've got a panel and you're putting it on a ship, it's got to be stiffened and strengthened. You put different kinds of backing material. The U.S. Navy likes to use what they call structural tees. So you put literally what looks like a big T that's running along, if you imagine a T, but then extend it along a line. And you put that onto, weld it onto a piece of steel so that the steel is stiff and doesn't bend. The, uh, we use people to tack the T's into place, but then the robot comes along and does the finish weld. So again, you're saving people's time and doing the rubber welds. So you saw all of that today. So instead of our old panel line, which took about two dozen welders, now we have a new panel line that has a couple of operators, three or four welders, and a whole bunch of robots working on the, on the panel line. And that allows us to, to build faster. Frankly, the robot weld is also more consistent, which our customer like. Uh, and that's, we, you saw several frigate panels being welded on that panel line. So that's the first uh, investment that can we I, made. Can I ask you to stop right there? Mm -hmm. so, so this is a, it's an impressive panel line, and what you just said about being able to do the top and the bottom without moving the plate, that's actually a big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it, you have to build it that way. So there's, there's a big well, uh, well underneath where, the, the, where right. the robot does the seams so that the robot welders can do top and bottom. You don't usually see that. This is this is a new, relatively new sort of panel. So this panel line is made by a company called Pima right. in Finland. Uh, I believe we were number five for them, and the panel line is uh, so the oh, excuse me. So I believe we were number five. Um, I think that's right in the Fincantieri family. But and the, fact, the point is that this is something that. Fincantieri, the right. The, the so company, I mentioned that. So enormous shipbuilder. Enormous shipbuilder. So Fincantieri, like we say, the parent company, uh, has shipyards all over the world. And uh, one of the things when I talk about the the company worldwide is every day, on nearly every continent, about a hundred thousand people will walk through the gates of a Fincantieri owned yard, to build ships for their customers. Whether that's a cruise ship or uh, a naval vessel or a Coast Guard vessel or a ship that supports the oil and gas industry or a ship that supports offshore wind, which is a, a growing industry, a ship that supports laying of ocean cables, all of those ships in various Fincantieri-owned or partnered yards uh, all over the world, in, in Asia, in Europe, in South America, in North America here in Wisconsin, Fincantieri is building those ships. The panel line that we have here and the panel line in the yard on the Adriatic Sea, Megara, which is close to Venice. Uh, Megara builds cruise ships. She's just delivered uh, a beautiful cruise ship to Norwegian Cruise Line. 
that I got to see this summer. I was over for some meetings with my colleagues, and I, I took a day trip to tour the yard in Megara. And they were uh, building uh, uh, the next uh, big cruise ship for Cunard, the British uh, cruise ship company, and it was uh, it was very impressive. The panel line that they have looked exactly like our panel line, just supersized. So the panels on a cruise ship, because it's so much bigger than a frigate, are are larger. So it was the same panel line, twice as wide, and you saw like double the number of robot welding stations across that. But it was just a scaled up version of what we have here. And so our ability to take full advantage of the technology that that something like an automated panel line holds is enhanced because we've been able to discuss with our Italian colleagues how to how to choose the right technology, how to get the most out of it, uh, and that's been you know very helpful. We've sent some folks over to Megara to learn from them. They've sent some folks over here to help us. Uh, but yeah, it's a that panel line is at the cutting edge of shipbuilding technology in the world today. So you had a new panel line here just for the frigate. Mm -hmm. This is because of the frigate program. You already had a pretty good panel line here in operation. To, to we had a, a perfectly adequate manual panel line for LCS. And, so this and, is a serious upgrade. Um, you have a new paint and Yeah, let's all talk about, let me talk about through, uh, let, me, let me walk through, if I may, the different capital investments. So besides the panel line, the second one was a new blast and paint facility. Uh, the blast and paint facility we had for have here for LCS is world class, and I I showed you all the different things we do in blast and paint to make sure that we're able to do that in as environmentally friendly a a manner as possible. But there are parts of the frigate that are too tall to fit in the current blast and paint bays, so we built additional taller bays by repurposing an existing building. And I showed you that construction is just now coming and complete, so we'll be able to do the entire frigate with that blast and paint bay. The third big investment we have made, and you saw that we're just finishing up on that, is the ship lift. So previously with LCS, we put ships in the water via a side launch. A side launch is perhaps the most primitive way to put a ship in the water Side launching of ships dates back to Roman times and possibly before that. So it's still a perfectly time-tested and adequate way to put a ship in the water, but it's really not an optimal way. And for a ship of the size and complexity of the frigate, uh, would not have been an acceptable way to put the frigate in the water. So with the ship lift, uh, we've got a, a ship lift is... A little bit like a floating dry dock without the tanks. Uh, you've got a, tr a transfer platform uh, that's uh, suspended on cables with a series of winches. And what you can do is drive your ship onto the platform. We use these uh, big trolley system uh, made by the Fajoli company that can trolley around large things like sections of ship. Or if you hook up enough trolleys together, you can trolley an entire ship around the yard uh, that can go onto the ship lift it goes onto the transfer platform you put the ship into its cradle you roll the fajolis off the transfer platform and then you just lower the winches and the ship goes down on the platform and when you lower it down low enough the ship floats free and then the tugs can go grab the ship from the platform and take it to whatever pier you're going to put it on and you can reverse the process 
and pick a ship up for maintenance using a ship lift. Uh, the, there's currently a ship lift of pretty similar design and size to this one that the Australians use in Adelaide for the air warfare destroyer. So we have a good right. analog for that. And you saw we are nearly done with the, uh, that ship lift. It'll be operational by the end of the year. Then the last capital improvement project for the frigate here in Marinette was the frigate erection bay. So it's cold here in Marinette, uh, especially in the wintertime. It's good to build ships indoors. You saw the LCS and the MMSC. We had an existing uh, erection bay where we could put two LCS size ships or LCS MMSC size ships next to each other and put all of the modules together, weld them together, as we say, erect the ship, and then do as much testing and outfitting inside in climate-controlled area before we put the ship outside and into the water. Uh, you really don't in Wisconsin want to be doing a lot of outside building uh, like you could in a more climate-friendly environment. Uh, building 10 is excellent at putting the LCS and the MMSC together, but the downside of that is that it's just not big enough for a Constellation-class frigate. So we built a new erection bay. You saw that. Uh, we've got two bays so we can put a frigate in one side, frigate in the other. Uh, this is a 200-meter long building. It's uh, 145 feet tall, if I remember that correctly. Three 300-ton cranes on each bay. Uh, and we started the erection of the second Saudi frigate in one of the bays just so we could learn how to use the building to its maximum capacity before we started using it on the first frigate. Uh, and then you saw some frigate work also going on in the, uh, in the other bay. Uh, and in fact... I pointed out to you that we were actually marking out, you saw it today, they were marking out on the floor where all the different pieces of the frigate will eventually go to have it all measured out per the, uh, the, the, the ship's drawing plan onto the, uh, the, the floor of the, uh, the, the bay there. So. so the construction, even though the final design isn't totally approved? Still have frigate. a little bit on the frigate. We still have a little bit left to go. So when you talk about a ship, you have a functional design and a detailed design. Functional design is... How you're going to do everything so it's you know things like electrical one-line diagrams you know, structure uh, space arrangement equipment arrangement all of that's the functional it's how's the ship going to do and then you have a detailed design which is where am i going to run that particular pipe uh, a functional design might say hey i need two inch pipe run between point a and point b but a detailed design is okay where is that pipe actually going to go where is it going to penetrate the bump head same for cable same for all of that uh, both those products are nearing completion. Uh, we have a little bit of functional design because the Navy has to approve all of our functional design products. Uh, and the Navy has approved now most of the functional design products for the frigate. There are still some amount of products where we have drafted and submitted and the Navy is either still reviewing or they have given us back comments requiring resolution and we've got a plan to resolve all of those. I, my original plan was to have that functional design done before the end of the year, before 2023 ended. Uh, I think I'll get close, but not all the way there. We'll probably have a few functional products that will still uh, get done in the first quarter of next year. And uh, my estimate is, is by the first quarter of next year, we'll be all the way done with detail design. We kind of design as we build, so the detail design finishes out bottom to top. The lower parts of the ship, the detail design, is is done but the the upper parts 
in a lot of cases we have structure that's done but we're not all the way done with the electrical or all the way done with the piping uh, in some cases we'll since we're done with the structure we might start on the structure and then do the pipe you know start working and install piping once the piping's already done uh, but that's again should be finishing up i'd say like first quarter of next year so indeed i've already i mean i, I saw today um, significant portions of the frigate of the future USS Constellation uh, FFG-62 have already been fabricated and are um, like the lower part of the engine room, mm -hmm. mid-section mid of the hull. Uh, this is already under construction. You're going to be building this ship in a, in, a, in a bit different way than I think people have seen in, traditionally in the United States um, with, because of the ship lift and because you're indoors. So you're going to do a lot of construction, a lot of fitting out of the ship in these erection bays. Erection meaning you take these big modules, put them all together, weld them all together, and the ship come, takes shape. It starts to look like a real ship, but inside this great big huge building. By the time it rolls out of the building, it's going to be, as I think you said, something like 90, 80, eight, between 85 and 90 percent done. That's, that's kind of amazing, and it rolls out on a series of rollers. Um, you're going to drive it around the yard, move it over to the ship lift, Drive it onto the ship lift, which then lowers the boat into mm -hmm. the water. Uh, very, very nice, gently, way right, of launching a ship. No damage. Um, I think you know one of the greatest stresses in the life of any ship is right is that that, that darn berthing process when you launch a ship, even if the, the old sideways uh, inclined launch uh, would come down. There's a big stressor, particularly with a longer ship, as part of the ship comes afloat and the rest. Of other part is still on, on shore. Uh, you're bending the ship in a way it's never going to be bent again, hopefully. Sideways launch, fairly big slam on one side of the boat. Um, not always the most gentle of, of things. Uh, this is the opposite. And because you've got this big facility, you're going to have a have, the ship's going to be almost complete. 90% by the time anybody even sees it. So the one thing that we will not be able to do inside the building will be any kind of radiating antennas. So comms and radars, uh, just because you would have a, an electromagnetic hazard if you energized any of those components inside an enclosed building like that. But you're right, we can do a tremendous amount of not just construction, but testing. Things like lube oil systems and water systems and, and electrical connectivity, all of that will be done inside the building before we roll that out onto the, uh, the ship lift and put it in the water. So the goal is absolutely to do as much as possible in the building. The building is climate controlled. The building is, it's a much more controlled, efficient environment to do work than a ship that's already launched. On the LCS, the way we have built them, we were limited because we side launched in how much we could complete in the building because there were certain equipment you wouldn't load out because you didn't want them to go through the trauma of the side launch. And there were certain alignments you just couldn't do because they would have to be redone once you side launched. There's a lot less of that for the frigate. More of it will be able to be done in the in inside the building. Like I said, the one area where there will be more extensive waterfront front testing will be the combat system testing because any of your radiating elements, you're going to have to do that outside the building from a safety perspective. 
So right now, um, your workforce, I think you said, is something like about 1,050 in this yard in Marinette. I have the total blue-collar workforce, uh, not counting. That's all of our hourly work, uh, but it does not count other companies that come in to do specific work on a fixed price. So, for example, uh, we outsource a fair amount of the insulation that gets done, but that's done. Separate company comes in, does a set amount of insulation for a fixed price, and then goes on to their next job. Which is true everywhere. Which is true. Other shipyards right. use that too. So, but our core workforce, our workforce of our our hourly employees plus contract labor that's paid on an hourly basis and therefore functions like our employees uh, is at just over 1,000, about 1,050 right now. So you're in a period of transition. And of course, just about any shipyard always is transiting, transitioning from something to something else. But this is a big deal for you. So you... The yard has been building littoral combat ships for more than 20 years. That is about to end, theoretically, by the end of 2024. The last LCS, LC, uh, the um, Cleveland, Cleveland will leave next LCS year. LCS 31 will do sail away, and you'll be done with LCS at Marinette. Uh, those people become available. You're working on the four Saudi frigates. That That's a certain amount of workforce, but you're also going to ramp up Frigate production, so there are already several that are under order, under contract, that's going to continue. You're going to need, I think you said something on the order of 1,400 or so. I need about another 400 right. over the next year to two uh, for the frigate work and the right. entire book of business that we have. So, so we've got a very aggressive recruiting program going on. We've got a couple of great benefits that we're offering. One of the things that we're very proud of for here in Marinette, Wisconsin, compared to really almost any other industrial activity that you would find in this part of the country, we have a very strong benefit package. Our health care, uh, the, the retirement match, that's a very strong uh, package of benefits. We are enhancing that in, uh, in a very special way for anyone who starts by the end of the year or is working here by the end of the year, they will be eligible for an up to $10,000 bonus. Uh, the first one is paid at the end of next year. So if they work here for a year, that's $5,000. And the second bonus will be paid at the launch of the 62, another $5,000 bonus the frigate, when, when, the, when the first frigate goes in the water. Really? So $2,000, $5,000 for a total bonus pool of 10,000. So you the, can actually get a signing bonus. It's not a signing bonus. It's a. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, not a sign, but but well, yeah. It's a bonus for coming to work here. Mm -hmm. You'll pay people five thousand. This is by for the rest of 2023. So, if, but for the rest of 2023, if you start work before January 1st, 2024, and you work here all of 2024 satisfactorily, there's some criteria of what satisfactory work looks like. Uh, then at the end of 2024, that's five thousand dollars, and then if you keep working. On the day that we launch Constellation, the day that the hull hits the water, you get another $5,000 for a total bonus pool of $10,000 for anyone that starts working here, who's either already working here and stays, or starts working here uh, before the uh, the end of the year. And uh, people who are interested in that can go to webuildships.com and learn all about our uh, exciting new 
recruitment and retention bonus. So that's a that's a that's a plug here. So this is this is a shout out, folks. If you want to come live in the beautiful Upper Midwest, and it is we have a very reasonable cost of living. Uh, every, you know, compared to other parts of the country, things are very affordable here. You just you, you have to do two things. One, you have to learn to become a Green Bay Packers fan. Uh, it's really not acceptable to root for any other NFL team. Uh, and then during the months of January, February, into March, you got to own a really good winter coat because it will get cold here. There's a lot of great winter outdoor activities. People get into ice fishing. People get into to, to snowmobiling out in the countryside. But uh, you do have to learn to, to either like or at the very least tolerate the cold weather because we do have quite the winter here, which is why we build our ships inside. Because in order to be productive during those months, we really couldn't be productive with uh, if we were building those ships, doing a lot of work outside. But working inside, it's climate controlled. You know, it's not a problem. The, uh, the, the, the lifestyle of living in Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan can be very attractive to a lot of people, and so it's a, it's great. It's a it's a small town living, but it's a a very economical and potentially high quality of life. So we're we're recruiting the folks who live here, but we're also interested in folks coming here, and uh, we do have relocation programs. Again, all of that is at webuildships.com. Okay, and uh, can talk a bit, but before we leave the whole workforce issue. Um, you know, retention is a major issue. So, and, I mean, there's there's been this change across the workforce, across the country, across the shipbuilding industry, where people are not necessarily staying for as long as they used to. Like a lot of people, the traditional model is they went to, they got a job at the at the shipyard out of out of high school, and they went to work uh, like their father did, and their grandfather did, and their uncle did, and their brother did, and their sister did. There's an awful lot of women in the shipyard, in the shipyards everywhere. Um, but that's not, not necessarily the mark anymore that they stay there for their whole lives. You've got to make, you've got to try to retain those folks. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about some of the improvements you've made around the yard in recent years to make things better for the folks who work here? Yeah, well, the, the program that I talked about is both recruiting and retention. So it's for the existing employees as well as the, uh, the employees that we're attempting to attract. We do have a lot of multi-generational shipbuilders here. We have I, There are folks here on staff whose father and grandfather uh, and now more frequently mother worked here in the, uh, in the shipyard. You notice that we have quite a lot of women working here, and, as, and even in the, in the trades, we have a, uh, a fair number of women in the trades, so it's not just men. It's, it's men and women. They're, they're in every job. And they're in every job. There's, yeah. there's nothing a woman can't do in yeah. the shipyard. So the... Uh, uh, the, the Things that we've done recently to try and retain employees, uh, we've had a, a series of things that, uh, that we've done that where you're basically trying to address the quality of life in the yard. Uh, COVID had killed the company Picnic, uh, and uh, we've managed to bring that back over the last couple of years and each year enhance that. Uh, we've enhanced our company communications. Uh, we've got a new... Uh, phone app now that our employees can download. We call it the Helm, and they get information. They get access to HR through that. We're trying to use that to improve the quality of work while they're here. Uh, people tend to like to have information on their phone better than getting a company newsletter. Uh, I talked about the uh, healthcare benefits. We just recently announced 
to our workforce that for the fifth year in a row, which I think is unheard of, there's going to be no premium increases for the uh, the health care that, uh, that our employees are paying for. Uh, we've done uh, our employee ambassador program. So we now select uh, outstanding employees uh, and put them through a program of both leadership training uh, and also we put them through, um, you know, allowing them to talk to their peers and networks in the community about what's going on at Marinette Marine and what the, the opportunities are at Marinette Marine. Um, we also have a, a, a started this year our Women in Shipbuilding program. So we offer specific mentorship and learning opportunity for some of our women employees uh, that uh, connects them with uh, senior leaders. Uh, and then all of Fin Cantieri does uh, yearly engagement surveys, focus groups, that management gets the feedback of, of what's on the employee's mind, and, and therefore we can take action in order to enhance the, uh, the employee experience. But that's just a few of the examples of things we've done to, uh, to try to enhance the employee's experience. Okay. Thanks again for hosting. Thank you for coming and seeing us, Chris. You're welcome back here anytime. Now hear this. Now hear this. Okay. Well, this week I want to kind of look at the symbolism of four carrier strike groups being placed multiple parts of the world in response to ongoing situations and, and or crises. As, as we've talked about at the top, the uh, carrier, George, the Gerald R. Ford strike group, which is already on deployment in the Mediterranean, on station, was available for contingencies, ready, ready for whatever happens. U.S. moved it quickly to the Eastern Mediterranean for contingency purposes, for whatever comes up, to stand by. But the entire world has taken notice of that. The leadership of the United States has been uh, citing that presence routinely, and that's being repeated by foreign leaders, by foreign media. And the, you know, the symbolism of the carrier reflects the country's interest and its commitment. The Dwight D. Eisenhower deploys routinely, ready to, re to relieve the Ford. Right away, it's going to join, uh, join up with the Ford. Media all is all over this. And in, in the Pacific, of course, the uh, Ronald Reagan was already on deployment in the Western Pacific, and the Carl Vinson deployed uh, a week or so ago uh, to go out and relieve the Reagan. Four carrier strike groups at sea with air wings um, at the same time is a really impressive accomplishment. No other Navy can come close by far. And the Chinese, this is an area where they can really only sit back and watch and dream one day. They're aiming for it, but they're a long way from this. But this, you know, where are the carriers? One of the classic, uh, you know, cliches in terms in times of crisis. And clearly the world is focused on, uh, on that, along with the tragedy of the ongoing war in Israel and Gaza. But, you know, Chris, I mean, you know, you, you know, you and I think about presence all the time. Presence matters. Numbers matter. You have to be there. And few things state and the, the uh, national intent more than an aircraft carrier in, in, in times like this, in military times. Uh, you know, you can't do it with an army. Armies stay home. Uh, Air Force, you can, you can put them out there. They're flying, but they, they tend to, as, as they say in the Air Force, fly high. People can't really see them. They're really out of sight. The ships, however, really, really send a statement. And once again, it's sort of, you know, the, the mission of the Navy 
in peace, in war, and what's in between, it's always out there. And, you know, right now, this is very much an in-between period. How does this strike you? Well, this is exactly why you want a, a strong and capable Navy. It's why you want that Navy deployed around the globe so that they can answer the call when uh, the balloon goes up or the bell goes off, whatever your, your favorite analogy is. But, uh, I mean, look, uh, those of us that have been around the Navy, either in it or covering it or advocating for it, I mean, this is no surprise to us. Um, in fact, when um, reports out of Congress or reports out of OSD or other think tanks question the value of presence, I mean, this is exactly what navalists um, hold up, that these are the exact conditions in which navalists hold up as to why you need the Navy that we've been arguing for. Now, I mean, you can argue, do you have 355 or do you have this number or that number? But Specific numbers aside, you need a Navy that can be out there ready to respond uh, on a moment's notice. Um, and I would say, you, you know, not just to the um, the potential for kinetic operations, but this was a busy week worldwide. The Chinese and Russian President Vladimir Putin, um, you know, participated in a Belt and, Belt and Road, yeah, Belt and Road conference. Um, in which the main message was that U.S. and Western power is on the decline and that, um, you know, when uh, these Belt and Road countries would need the U.S. and the West, that they won't be there. And I think it's a strong message, not just for our leaders to be out there talking and pushing back on that notion, but I think the fact that four carrier strike groups were deployed around the world sends a message counter to what Xi and Putin would try to sell. So there's not only the... Um, the tactical or operational value that these uh, four strike groups provide, but they certainly provide a strong strategic and geopolitical um, messaging tool um, for the U.S. Uh, and like-minded Western nations. You know, and, and again, it's not just carriers. We have an amphibious ready group over there. You know, there's two and a half right. thousand uh, Marines to 26 mil. Is out there on board three ships, three large, very capable amphibious ships that are particularly useful not only in deploying Marines and carrying all the gear that, that they would need, a lot of vehicles, a lot of a lot, a lot of uh, craft to get them ashore, a lot of helicopters, strike aircraft, but also should the United States start evacuating people fast, right? Um, there's nothing. I mean, there, there's no asset like these big amphibious ships to get people out fast. And that's, that you know, again, that's a capability that really nobody else has yet. Chinese, again, they see it, they're building towards it, they're, but they're nowhere near this, this sort of thing. And in an era where, you know, we're questioning the value of the amphibious ships, where, you know, where are they, are they useful in, in actually kinetically striking the Chinese should the Chinese intend to invade Taiwan. And if they're not, then we don't need them for anything else. Well, here's something besides the Taiwan scenario where they're incredibly useful, very valuable to have. And believe me, if, if people start needing to be evacuated, this the value of these things will be just on display you know, a thousand fold. Well, I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll be amazing. Nobody has this. You're, you're absolutely right. And it is so easy to think about naval power purely in the context of 
a Taiwan invasion or, you know, um, per, you know, repelling uh, forces in the Black Sea or even the kinetic scenarios um, in and around Israel. But so much of what these naval forces provide um, is in that phase zero and phase one, um, you know, operation short of war that either um, help prevent war or um, better set the conditions for um, operations that we would want to carry out as a joint force. And so um, I hope our, our national leaders take note of um, how uh, important these naval forces uh, have been. Um, I mean, I, I feel very strongly about our entire joint force, but I am particularly proud um, when um, our naval forces are able to demonstrate their value um, in these presence missions. Right. You simply have to be there. All right. Well, folks, that'll do it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavaliers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>